Okay, record. Yeah, you got a little thing bouncing around. All right. Got to hold the power button. All right. Cool. Welcome, small crew. Um, Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. Uh-huh. Well, there they are. There they are. I just asked everybody to turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and 6. Since the recorder's on, I'll read it and you guys can catch up. It's not a very long passage. 2 Corinthians 5, we'll start at verse 17. We'll end at chapter 6, verse 2. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us, who beg on you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And, verse 1, chapter 6, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Believe it or not, the title of the sermon, I should say the Bible study, is Free Will. It has less to do with the passage, although the context of the passage will be critical for us to understand the statement that is made in verse 2. But, if you are, and for everyone who is here, I think everyone here understands the difference and distinction between Arminianism and Calvinism, to people who were uh, proponents of two different biblical worldviews in relationship to free will, especially, not to say there weren't other differences in other theology, but specifically known for that category in that subject. Jacob, or James Arminius, was, of course, the namesake of Arminianism, and John Calvin, a French theologian of Calvinism. Now, this doesn't mean any of us, And you want to always be careful what crowd you say those words to in the sense that they will, and you may be claimed to be a Calvinist follower or an Arminian follower, which you hear less. On the other hand, it's a short way to describe theology very quickly, and none of us are those two men followers. The context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that we are ambassadors to Christ or for Christ. And since we fear God earlier on in the chapter, and we will all sit before the judgment seat of Christ, knowing both Christians and non-Christians will be judged one day, we persuade, 
men. Now in chapter 6, the fact that we too received grace, uh, the grace of God, Paul urges the Corinthians at this point, after saying the theological things that he has said in verses 17 through 21, to not receive this grace in vain. That is, do not waste your time in the flesh. Remember your conversion. And that's the assumption going on in verse 2. When God acted so powerfully in you, making you a new creation in Christ, reconciling you through the blood of Christ back to God. So, if we reread verse 2, which is the crux of our conversation in relationship to free will, Paul says, at the acceptable time I listened to you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, let me start. Ooh, oh my, that's... I think Randy did that on purpose by opening the window. So uh, here's a little um, story that I have. One day I was at the uh, end of my driveway and I see this guy walking on the road. And lo and behold, it's actually a very old friend of my brother Clay's. And I knew he was a Christian, professing, dynamic Christian. Uh, when I knew that was a Christian, not, not say a borderline Christian. So we started out with a theological conversation after, you know, greeting one another and, and talking to one another about how each one of us was doing. And, uh, and so we got on the subject of Arminianism because I knew he was Arminian and not my own Calvinism. And I had told him, I said, listen, I said, we're dead in trespasses and sin. Dead doesn't mean partially alive. He says, quote unquote, I believe in that too. Now, the interesting thing is, is he wasn't the one who was wrong historically. I was. And I'm glad to actually that the Lord, the Spirit of God, had corrected me on this. And we're eventually going to end up at the end of this short study about what is the, the uh, you could say, the point of departure for the Arminian and the Calvinist to separate from the free will worldview, you could say, of the understanding of free will. So that was my encounter of that day. You learn something every day. I'll probably find out how stupid I was when I'm 75 years old and in, in the day before I die, right? We're all always learning. We're learning about even our mistakes, and that even includes some of our theological mistakes of, you know, of what we believe and how we believe others believe. So, was I right in thinking? The answer was no. Because my friend was actually being consistent with the history of Arminianism. On the other hand, when you talk to an average Arminian believer who believes in free will from a different perspective, that doesn't mean that everything is different. On the other hand as well, even in uh, history, time seems to fade. Those arguments of history past seem to fade. And so in modern Christianity, there are faulty views on Calvin's side and also on, on the Arminian side. Hyper-Calvinism. Well, if you talk to an Arminian, every single Calvinist is a hyper-Calvinist. 
And no one exists like Sovereign Grace Chapel exists, right? On the other hand, we would also think that no Arminian that I talked to in the 21st century would believe what James Arminius actually believed in the bondage of the will. The fascinating thing is, is Luther's argument came in the form, uh, eventually came in the form of a book that was later printed from his arguments and his statements in relationship to his debate with Jacob, Jason, uh, Jason, Jacobus, James Arminius in the 1500s, that um, that title of that book was The Bondage of the Will, because there is a distinction. But when we actually look at the actual theology of James Arminius, we will find out that he believes the same as Luther did in relationship to the bondage of the will. So then it will depend on us understanding the point of demarcation or departation, you could say. Where does they finally hit that Y in the road and the road splits? So, here's a question. If they do believe in human depravity, in other words, words that the will is not free, it is dead, why two belief systems? that say free will is different, right? That's the question. What does verse 2 imply? And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Denise, verse 2. What does it imply first and foremost? And now put yourself in the place of a Calvinist or a Reformed person. I like that word a lot better. Uh, or an Arminian who believes in free will with a different nuance that goes in, a, in that Y within the road in a different direction, an understanding the will and its freedom, its power. What is that? If I were sitting right next to an Arminian and we're reading this together, what would he say in relationship to verse 2? That the acceptable time was his decision? That's right. Or at least it was partly the decision of the man, right? Or the woman being saved. In fact, the Arminian may literally say to you, this is my proof text, right? It's an important thing. And by the way, they would go to other texts that would seem to imply their theological worldview. Like in so many other, you know, John Calvin said, he says, there's mystery in every single doctrine. There just is, and I totally concur with that. That doesn't mean that we can't come to some solid points to believe on and hang our hat on, right? The creeds and, and the uh, statements of faith and the councils, all these were laying down the gauntlet, you could say, about the core truths of the faith. So this actually would be more of a proof text if you isolate the text by itself. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 for the Arminian, right? Because what is implied here? At the acceptable time, I listen to you. That means the person who is dead in trespasses and sin has some kind of power within them to hear the call, right? That's implied. And 
on the day of salvation, I helped you. Oh, that implies power to the individual person hearing the message, right? I came to you. Now, what we're going to have to discuss here is what, where does salvation begin? Does it begin at the first time you hear the gospel? Yep. And the eternal counsel of God between the Father and the Son and the work of the Spirit. You can't help talk about this subject without talking about election. And the problem is, is in a short period of time that Sandy is threatened that she's going to leave on me, I only have so many minutes to actually get to the point. That's true. Me too. There you go. I just have a quick question. That's right. Uh, in verse 2, who's speaking? Is it God? God. Well, it's a quotation from the Old Testament. It's God. Okay. Yes, okay. and so it's God. Yeah, okay. But the thing is, though, is that when we isolate any verse, right, we can actually make, and the cults do this, right? The cults can make a doctrine out of a verse taken out of its context. Oh, yeah. Right? So, we know that we can't, by the way, also not only isolate a context, but we also can't use human rationality to come to the conclusion that the Bible says this without the Bible supporting the truth in and of itself, right? In other words, the Bible, the biblical doctrines of the Bible validate their own doctrines, the Bible's own doctrines. Human rationality, we don't go up and say, well, you know, God is sovereign, and um, uh, no man can come to God unless the Father who sent, sent me draws him. Right? John 6. And said, well, you know, that just doesn't make human rational thought logical. Because, you know, he says, I do have a will. And I'll tell you, if you want me, I can step right out of this room and I can take 20 steps and walk out. And you can't stop me. Right? You can't tell me that I can't believe and unbelieve. Right? Human rationality would say that's all true. But, it's not the whole truth. And there's also some falsehood within it. And the Bible paints a great picture for us to understand what the will is, how powerful it is, or it is not. Right? So, the implication here, especially as rational beings, we think rationally, we think that somehow, yes, God helped us. We had a part in our salvation. Right? Our, uh, James Arminius makes the statement, God would never give us commands that we couldn't obey. Seems logical, right? It seems rational. God would never give commands. That's why Augustine was, was vilified for the statement, Lord, grant that which I will do and... Um, what I do also grant. And that's a paraphrase. I didn't get it totally quoted there. But do you understand what's going on there? In other words, God is sovereign in both realms. He's sovereign in the realm, realm of the things that he decrees. And then the things that he decreed and what you will do, even what you do, what you do are also decreed. Right? There's not a thing that God doesn't have control within our lives. Now, granted, the great big argument for uh, James Arminius is the fact that how could God ever be just? 
How could he ever be just if man didn't have a free will to choose and unchoose? By the way, Dave, we're in Second Corinthians six, chapter oh, okay. two. Thank you. Yeah. So that seems to be a problem. <clears throat> but does God has to does God have to bend the knee to that human reasoning? Right. That's right. Human reasoning has gotten uh, the world, let alone people, into trouble many, many a times. Rather than, you know, as the scripture says multiple times, don't turn to the left nor to the right. Uh, very much like Jesus put his face like flinch to Jerusalem. He had a certain specific task to do under the Father's will. And we have a specific task to do. Don't divert, whether it's human logic or anything else. Don't divert. You just follow the truth. Straightforward, hath God said, right? Isn't that what Luther said when he was in, in trial? He says, if it doesn't say it in the scripture, paraphrase again, then I can't depart from the scripture. Right. right? I, that's not a quote, but that's the sense of it. So that's who we are as Christians. That's sometimes why Baptists and Reformed people have been, especially Baptists, have been referred to as Biblicists. Show me the text. I want not a pretext. I want context and proof of the truth written in Scripture. All right? Not human rationale, not uh, uh, human reasoning, not human logic, not that that is wrong. Because those are gifts from God in order that we can use those in the scripture. But they are not the final say when we find difficult passages and say, that doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe I'll change it because it's a rational thought. Right? There's a difference. But logic, rationality are beautiful gifts that God has given us. But we're sin-cursed people who still have the remnants of sin with us. And we misuse them, don't we? So what is Paul actually saying about the salvation experience? That God listened when we responded by faith. That God helped us in saving us. Now that whole word helped has to be defined. Now the help Paul is talking about is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right? Context is everything. Not a pretext. Not a theological presupposition of Arminianism. Reading into a text, what does the context say? So what in that context, from verse 17 to verse 21 of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians, would lead us to, to determine why Paul says what he says in relationship to it? And why it makes the, the interpretation different than what an Arminian would look at it through logic. <coughs> And I'll give you a hint. Verse 17 and 18. If the will is being used in chapter 2, according to Arminians, then that will, that being implied, has to be at least fitting in the context or we just can't go any further. What does it say? Therefore, if any man, verse 17 is in Christ, he is a new creature. Right? Now, if you study the, the, uh, soter the fancy word soteriology, the salvation of man, 
understanding, which would include understanding man's free will. You must understand that God gives three uh, metaphors to describe salvation. One is resurrection, one is birth, the other is creation. All of those are autonomous, singular, monotheistic acts of God. We do not create ourselves. Only God creates man. He also recreates a new man with a new heart in regeneration. Right? So that is, is just a singular point. You could say, put an arrow from verse 17 over across your page to verse 2 of chapter 6. Right? That would be very important if you were having that discussion with an Arminian believer. And I emphasize believer. Plenty of great Arminian pastors and uh, believers out there that we should well respect. But we certainly, as Reformed people, don't side with them on certain things of the free will. Because we recognize that it isn't totally free. It's in bondage. He made us a new creation and he reconciles us by the power of God's grace through Christ's atoning sacrifice. That's what he's saying at the end of chapter 5. But someone will still say then, I had a part in getting saved. Right? That logic, that rationality. By the way, add another thing. That human experience. Right? Aren't we an experience-orientated world? We shouldn't be surprised that the culture creeps into the church. And it actually ends up buttressing some theological systems. And it does with Arminianism. I experienced salvation. It's a wonderful thing, by the way. But therefore, the theology of that salvation experience must mean that I cooperated with God. Right? Logical, even in thinking of it that way. I see why they get to some of these points, right? It's not just the justice of God, it's the experience itself that kind of feeds into getting saved and understanding the theology of how we get saved. But is Paul saying that, is he really saying that I had a part in getting saved in verse 2? The answer is no. He's not defining free will. That's important here, right? We can make a verse say something outside of the context because the verse is so illuminating to my theological worldview on free will, right? Mm -hmm. But is that Paul's point in verse 2? And the answer is no. His, he's urging on believers to act upon this grace of salvation which God was involved in by helping you and listening to you. But he's not explaining the doctrine of free will, right? That's just... If you're going to understand the doctrine of free will, what other categorical doctrines do you have to go into? Okay. Okay. That's right. How about the nature of man and the nature of God? If you understand those two categories properly, you will come out with a different conclusion. Yeah. They don't like predestination and election. 
Well, that's right, but they, they do have a view on predestination and election because they're in the Bible. Okay? So they will emphasize the foreknowledge of God, which is a true theological category, but they will also use it in a different manner than what Reformed people do. And again, I don't want to get into alternate doctrines, but you have to realize that to make a statement about free will in this passage is to say there's an awful lot more in the scripture that builds your foundation about understanding free will or the lack of it in relationship to the totality of the Bible. The question is, does the Bible say in other places any truths about the will and of God's grace in its operation? Right? Here's some historical facts. James Arminius said in the 1500s, the man who debated uh, Martin, Martin Luther and uh, which ended up actually precipitating Martin Luther's uh, writing on the bondage of the will. James Arminius says this, The fall leaves man ruined under the dominion of sin. The free will of man towards God is not only wounded, which you will hear today, but not that part. It won't be the not only, but you will hear, I'm wounded you're sick, but you're not dead. All right? But James Arminius says, oh, no, 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 no. The free will of man towards God is not only wounded, but it's imprisoned, destroyed, and lost. Whoever thought that James Arminius actually believed that? Because that's what Calvinists believe. But he didn't say that. No, no, no. He, this is, we as Reformed people concur with his statement right there. It's in R.C. Sproul's book, by the way, on free will. So who can argue against R.C. Sproul? That's right. So then the question is, what is the difference between them? Because some other things are being said in terms of definitions of free will, right? Have anybody here, hands up, have conversations with Arminians on the context, on the topic of free will? Yeah. It's not uncommon. Uh, and, and I think it's like iron sharpening iron in, in many cases. Hopefully it's civil. And uh, it's uh, profitable for both. Well, for me, it was I found out that Jacob, uh, James Arminius um, did make statements in relationship to the nature of man that was consistent with Calvinism. The problem is, there's a why in the road for both characters. Whether it's Luther and James Arminius, whether it's Augustine and Pelagius, why's in the road? Some agreement, some agreement, some agreement, and then, right? The interesting thing here um, is Paul's quote, quoting Isaiah 49 8. 49.7 at the end says because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you mm -hmm. and that chosen yeah. what in context of Israel reading the Old Testament scriptures was I chose you not because you were more righteous than the other nations mm -hmm. but I chose you because I wanted to choose you mm -hmm. kind of goes back to Romans 9 too, right mm -hmm. Jacob and Esau I chose you 
I chose the secondborn rather than the firstborn. Why? Because I have the right. I deserve. I reserve the right to choose the one over the latter. So, but that hits. That hits. That hits the emotion, doesn't it? Especially for the Arminian. And so sometimes they rely on emotion or rationality or logic. Sometimes these these um, uh, passages are, especially people who are not trained in the Armenian camp, uh, they may approach a text like uh, 6-2 in an emotional way and not really know what's being said. On the other hand, there's theologians who know exactly what they're saying and they still believe what they believe. And that's nothing wrong with that. But I choose to believe what I believe because God has revealed it to me in relationship studying the scriptures like all of us have to come to a day of reckoning. What do I believe, right? The Armenians, one uh, Armenian believes that God, and now here's the key, here's the difference. Put this in your mind. That God incites, quote, and assists, quote, Man. So, in other words, in regeneration, God incites in man the power, even though he's powerless in agreement with Calvinism, he incites within man the power and the will and the desire to a certain degree so that he has the capacity of free will to freely choose and unchoose. One of my responses to that is this. If man has the power to choose and unchoose, then God can never be be certain of the actual choice that he would make if you truly want to define it as true free will. Right? To be free is to be free like the garden. That they truly had the choice to to choose to or not to obey God. And that is not the free will after the fall. So, Man is incited in order that he can get out of this deadened state. Even though Jake, James Arminius gives a, uh, a uh, and, and R.C. Sproul puts it in his book in a chapter form, of his quotation that he agrees with Calvinists, but something's going on. And Jacob, James Arminius says, no, but God incites the will of man in order to respond. On the other hand, Actually, and here's the other point, very point. I'm going to just read what I have here. That God incites and insists man in order that he might respond with his free will in faith to God, producing regeneration. That regeneration and illumination, which are a must because it's conversion, and conversion includes illumination, is not a complete one singular moment of time. Now, that's extremely different from the Reformed worldview. Calvinists believe that regeneration is the singular, my words, act of God's saving grace upon the soul of man. And only after regeneration does God give the gift of faith in order that man may exercise his freed, not free, that's my word, freed will to believe. Why would I use the word freed with a D instead of free? Because God has freed him from his bondage. 
in order that he may believe, not by the inciting of God to the will of man, but by the power of his regenerating spirit of God, producing regeneration first before any other element of salvation can follow after it. So in other words, the answer to this disagreement is found in what does the Arminian believe in regeneration compared to the Calvinist? What's happening at that exact moment? Did God help you? And you had the power because logically it seems true that you had power within yourself to be able to obey the commands of God and to hear the word of God because God is only helping you and he incited you to have power. Or you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You had no power and God had to literally save you in time, not inciting you, but simply saving you and giving you the gift of faith afterwards in order to believe in him. Now this may be simultaneous. Who knows the mystery of salvation? There are much mystery in the saving work of God. But he does save us. And it's his grace alone. See, the Arminian would say God's grace assists we say grace is just gracious and he saves. You see the difference? So, and we see this, by the way, in Hebrews chapter 11 on what faith is. Hey, uh, faith, is the, uh, faith is the hopes, hope of things not seen and, the, and uh, is the evidence of things not seen and the hope of the things and the How's it going? Help me repeat it. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, yep. the conviction of things not seen. See, here's the thing. In that definition that we're given, of course, there would be many definitions you could define it in different nuances, but that biblical definition there is saying the only thing we have hope is God regenerating power to see what we can't see. And that agrees with that text in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's all of grace. It's all of the power of God. There's no power within man. God doesn't assist him to believe that would make man part and parcel of his salvation experience, right? So we can see that the Arminian would see 2 Corinthians 6, 2 as a proof text. But the Calvinist sees the context of chapter 5 to define of what Paul is saying and to help in understanding the point he's getting at. When God creates, he does not need us to assist him. Right? He creates us. He makes us a new creation. So, let's go to some text for the fun of it. Uh, go to Romans 3 first. And we're going to look at verse 10 through 12. You've probably read it a thousand times like me. Um, probably you can quote half of it. I can only quote a few verses. Um, very important though. Therefore, start at verse 1. Excuse me. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you, who passes judgment. For in that you judge another. You condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same 
things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And Paul will eventually say both Jew and Gentile. Do you suppose this, O man, that you pass judgment? Do I have that? Do I have it? Romans 3. I'm reading from 2. Sorry. I knew it sounded different. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Sorry about that. There we go. Let's read verse 1. Because this includes Jew and Gentile. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. By, by the way, that word under would also say under the power of sin. Or under its dominion. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Now let's use logic and human rationality, which I told you can get people in trouble. But if it's rationality and human logic and relationship to the truth of Scripture, it can assist us, right? So therefore, if no man seeks after God, how can he be assisted to seek after God? Right? Does that make sense to you? If no man understands, how can he understand the gospel when it is spoken to him? When God assists him to understand the gospel? Does that make sense to you? Sure it does. So no man seeks after God. All the credit, all the glory goes to God alone in saving faith and saving grace. Free will, again, this is all buttressed under the larger category of soteriology. Understanding man, you realize after you read the scriptures fully from Old and New Testament and through the New Testament, you find out he is just worthless. He's useless. He can't seek God because he's dead in trespasses and sin, and dead means dead. Right? Go to John 1. John 1. Familiar text. Alright, so. Let's go uh, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, by the way, it could be argued from an Arminian perspective, or from a Calvinist perspective to an Arminian, then why didn't God assist the Jews better when they were falling by the wayside in spiritual idolatry. Right? It literally says here, he came to his own and those his own did not receive him. Well then, why didn't he help them? Why didn't he listen to them? Well, we find out later on in Romans chapter 11, that which Israel was, was seeking, it did not obtain, but those who were chosen attained it and the rest were left to themselves. Eyes to not see, ears to not hear, lest I heal them. It's a sovereign act of God. You cannot. And so, you know, one of the false caricatures of Arminians towards Calvinists is, well, that means, because God saves by electing grace, because remember, that enters into this understanding of free will, he doesn't only save you in time by his sovereign grace and his 
has, it, it has nothing to do with assisting. It has everything about sovereign grace and God's pleasure to choose you and, and save you is his electing grace that enters into the fold and trying to understand the mind of God and how he saves people and why he saves people. And so, look what it says in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So you would think in that verse, but as many as received him, reception means I must have some kind of capacity, right? That's the assumption. Again, isolating a verse. But what is the context? Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There again, once in the context of salvation, one of those words being used, those metaphors being used, is birth, resurrection, and creation. And we've seen it in two of the three cases this morning. And so man is helpless as as Luther wrote, the will is in bondage. And by the way, when you are in chains to sin, you can't get yourself out. The chains are too powerful. Right? And lastly, let's go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse uh, 3 through 7. For we also once were foolish ourselves. By the way, in the doctrine of salvation, understanding God's electing of you. You, when he he did not choose sovereignly maybe hundreds of thousands of other people. If you're going to do it, you know, from a mathematical perspective. There's no boasting. Right? And even the Arminian doctrinal understanding of salvation and free will leaves room for boasting. I still remember when I first got saved... I didn't have any theology underneath my belt. and um, I said, I wonder what God saw in me. <laughs> I mean, it comes logical to the human mind, though, doesn't it? It's logical to think that way about God must have seen something in me because I didn't understand the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the bondage of man's will. So for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful hating one another. But when the kindness of God, that's a word that I like, the kindness, not the help, not the listening that we read, because again, the only way to understand it is in the true context of creation. Not to say it was the wrong choice of words to the Apostle Paul, by the way. But in the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. Appeared. He saved us. Not, and by the way, I cannot 
emphasize that in many of these verses, like uh, I think it's First Timothy chapter two, and other places, you have the condition of you can't do it; only God can, right? So here it is. Here He saved us. In other words, God can. Not on the basis of your deeds, you can't, right? Which we have done in righteousness, you aren't. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration in the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, he might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So grace is based on the understanding that man has no grace in himself, no power within himself, no righteousness within himself left from the fall. And so regeneration is the point of demarcation for the Arminians and the Calvinists. Either God assists you or God does it all by himself. The fancy words that are used in theology is monergism and synergism. Synergism implies two parties in the salvation process. Monergism is God alone. Mono. And so God is gracious in it. Yeah? It kind of of makes sense why most of them believe that they can lose their salvation too. That's right. Because if they're playing in a pot and obtaining it, Mm -hmm. they can play a pot and losing it. Yeah. Well, I've always argued with those because, you know, the L in TULIP is always the most controversial one, right? Limited atonement, particular redemption. But I've always said if you take out one, and uh, most pastors and theologians will agree, if you take out one, you don't have the other four anyways, even if you're a four-point Calvinist. And that, why? By the way, why is that? Let me ask you a question. Why is that? Use your reasoning capacity that God gave you. Because it is reasoning helps you along in this question. Because if you don't believe in limited atonement, you can't possibly believe in total depravity because you wouldn't have the ability to choose if you're totally depraved. That's right. And you also wouldn't believe in the perseverance of right. the saints because it's God that keeps you. you know, it, it, it's his it's tumbling down effect. It's, it's the dominoes going, boom. the whole argument is done, being a full point Calvinist. In other words, to restate it in a, in a different way, but in the same emphasis as Denise did, if God's atonement is not limited, therefore man's will must be totally free in order that he has the capacity to choose because God son, God's son died for all. And if he died for all and gave the capacity of free will for all, then man can't be totally depraved. And then, therefore, it is not necessary for irresistible grace because God cannot... Well, how's it going to go? I mean, irresistible grace, when I'm trying to think that one through, I haven't actually stated this in a long time. Well, man cannot be free. He has to be in bondage if God is the only one who could save through limited atonement. In other words... He sets his affections and grace on the people he has chosen before the foundation of the world. And therefore, if man is free to choose, 
then he also has the ability to unchoose. How could God ever be confident that they would not unchoose? You get that? Because if the will is totally free to unchoose, then they could unchoose what God had chosen before the foundation of the world. Do you see that? That's why limited atonement is the key to all the other ones. If you can now unchoose, then grace is not irresistible, it's resistible. If it's unconditional election, then you could choose out of that electing grace of God. And if free will is the ability to unchoose, you would never persevere. Ever. Why? Because at some moment you could surprise God that you finally decided, because your will is free, that I can unchoose. If it's totally free. Do you get that now? I'm starting to remember some of my old reasoning back there. But it's, it, it, it's, it's kind of like trying to say, uh, how much could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck, but now say it a thousand times and see if you get it all right, right? It doesn't, it, you know, it's hard. But this reasoning does make sense in relationship to understanding. It must all be of God only. Because if freedom were truly free, we would, we would expect many would unchoose what God chose. And then that just makes a mess of God. And then eventually it makes a mess of man in the teaching of the Bible about who man is and bondage. Last thing, how would an Arminian then understand the new creation? Right? It gets back to, well, we're part of that new creation decision. Right? All becomes this decision orientation. Becomes like a Billy Graham crusade. Not to say anything against him, I think he was very consistent with the gospel. And I, I miss him as a preacher. I, I think he could be a great voice still today in the 21st century. Uh, although I'm not certain if he would have the same respect, because pretty much none of us have any respect anymore. Because we're taken out of the equation, the argument, and the debate. Uh, but, how would an Arminian understand a new creation? Well, it couldn't be a creation, a true creation, because God only creates. Right? Bill, you're quiet today. <laughs> I'm always quiet. Any questions on that? Any questions? I know it's a big subject. I told Randy, I said, hit me on the head. He goes, why? Uh, I said, because I chose to study free will in 50 minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Really, um, when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. They That's didn't right. go towards God. Adam, even God called them men. That's right. Adam, where are they? Excellent point. And also, um, I don't know if everybody believes this, but it's kind of like Adam was like a had priestly, kingly duties yep. in that Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. and his job was to guard and keep the garden and. That's Christ as the new Adam guards and keeps us. That's his, and he does it perfectly. So he is the one that keeps us, the perseverance of the saints. Right there back in, you know, as a foreshadowing Genesis of what Christ is to us now. Well, I think that's why there's a double whammy going on in charismaticism. Because not only are they have a misunderstanding of free will, and the majority of them are Arminians. Rarely do you find a reformed. But also, their religion, much of it is based on human experience with the gifts, one of the miraculous sign gifts. Mm-hmm. 
So you put experience with the free will that can unchoose. There are an awful lot of people questioning their salvation 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Right? I mean, you, you, you've set up your body as having this lack of confidence and hope and perseverance. It just isn't there for so many. And, and, and to, st- to say that you can lose your salvation is to denigrate the very power and personhood of God. Right? It just denigrates his character. And so it's really important for us to stay the course on free will, telling people that it's not as free as you think, and it's a bigger subject, su- bigger subject than you think, and hey, invite me over for coffee and we'll talk about it. Right? That's a good thing. All right, let's finish in prayer. Father, we thank and praise you and express our love to you, O Lord, not as beings who have power within ourselves, but as a new creation in Christ, being sown uh, the Spirit of God within our very souls and hearts and minds with a new heart. We respond to you, O Lord, in a manner that is according to your will within us as people who have been born again anew and afresh, who have been resurrected in spirit, and had a new birth and a new creation with a new heart and with a new voice that says, Yes, Lord, I'll follow you. So, Lord, we want to follow you in holiness and righteousness of truth. We want to follow you, O Lord, with a heart that catches up with all that truth so that we might be pleasing in your sight, loving, O Lord, our neighbor and loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And yes, O Lord, all of this, all of this church stuff, which isn't stuff, but it's holy stuff. All these ministries and all these these uh, means of grace that you have given, O oh Lord, it's all for your glory. It's just all for your glory. And uh, we give it to your name and for the glory of your name this day. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Now... Well, Todd, what did you do with after the 